fun facts. This is episode 15. Who's going to bake a cake in your underground bunker? All of that will make sense when we introduce our topics in a moment. Uh, I am your co-host, Amy Augenbaugh. My partner is... Carrie Strickland. And our guest, again, I'm really glad that he's back, is... Reed Baker. Thanks, Reed, for coming back. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So you've already been on the show, so you we know some stuff that makes you awesome, but what else do you want to like tell us about you today? Uh, I am an engineer. I work at Google. And I should say that I work for Google, but I do not speak for Google. And uh, my family is awesome. Your family is awesome. All right. Well, that, that, that's enough. We don't really have business this week, except that I owe, I'm going to do the quickest review ever of goat yoga because I said I was going to do it and then I did it and I'm going to loop back on the podcast. Um, as I suspected, goat yoga was way, way more about the goats than about the yoga. It was fun. It was maybe not worth $40. Uh, and I, my only review really is that I, ha- I appreciated the poor yoga instructor that worked really hard to keep us on task, but also just accepted that we were going to play around and have fun. I'll post a link to her site. Uh, she, her name is Gabby Pusateri, and her site is called Belly Yoga and Beyond. Um, and if you ever have a chance to do goat yoga, you should try it, but don't expect to get a workout. Okay, let's do topics. Reed, what's your topic this week? My topic is Evergreen College and the uh, scandal surrounding one of their professors. Okay, my topic is... Do you have to bake a cake for gay people? And we're not really going to talk about what we think the Supreme Court will say about that, but it's brought, brought upon by a Supreme Court case that's going to be argued in October. And Carrie, what's your topic? Mine is just a fun question, um, which is I've been thinking a lot recently about apocalyptic bunkers. And so I'm just going to ask the three of us what we would put in our apocalyptic bunker if we were designing one. Okay, so... Read. let's talk about your topic first. Okay. So Evergreen College is uh, a college that has had this pretty interesting event since the ni- early 1970s, which was called a Day of Absence. And a Day of Absence was where all of the people of color in the community would not show up to class or work, students, faculty, staff, to highlight their underrepresented roles. And then... Uh, this year, there was an email sent to the uh, all of the student body plus faculty and staff saying that if you were, they were going to inverse the day of absence this year because some students of color felt like they weren't feeling included after the 2016 election. And so they sent an email to all of the people saying that uh, if you are white, please do not come to campus or or work or anything like that during this day. Um, and a biology professor, um, whose first name is Brett, and I forget his last name, uh, sent a public response that said, hey, I don't think this is right. There is a huge difference between a group of people not showing up to highlight their underrepresented, undervalued roles in a community and telling a group of people that they are not welcome. The second is oppression. The first is a call to consciousness. Um, And I don't think that that's okay. Um, And this happened, it kind of like simmered for a while. And there was like people who didn't, who asked for the professor to apologize and stuff like that. And he was like, no, no, I really believe this and has been trying to engage people on the merits. And then 
it all got inflamed a couple of weeks ago when he went and did an interview um, on Fox where he discussed what was happening. Um, and after that, there were calls for his rec- resignation. And there have been a bunch of like videos posted by the protesters that are like 50 people in his classroom screaming at him and calling him a racist. And there's been videos of them like screaming at the president of college and um, there were like community patrols that happened earlier in the year where people were walking around with baseball bats and tasers. And it's all, it's all really weird. And I'm bringing it up today, mostly just because a lot of people haven't heard about it, even though it's been covered by the New York times and the Washington post and the wall street journal and slate. And just like a bunch of news organizations have covered it mostly saying like, this is really crazy. Um, and that, uh, not only are the protesters wrong in the sense that this particular professor is not a racist, but they're also doubly wrong because he's somebody who is like a fairly liberal professor um, and has like supported a bunch of racial equality things throughout his career, but can't get anyone to engage on the idea that there is this difference. Um, and then he also did an interview with Joe Rogan where he talked about some of the like structural things that have happened inside the college that are a little bit different. Um, that make Evergreen slightly unique um, and uh, mentioned a fairly controversial thing, uh, which was that he believes that inside of the equality movement, there's actually some set of people who want to inverse the oppression and some sort of pe- some sub- a larger subset of people who want equality. And for the, a long period of time, you could not tell the difference because everyone was moving in the same direction. And as we get closer to equality, meaning like since the 1970s, um, you will, that there will continue to be this tension because there are some set of people who want to inverse it. And um, I don't discuss. Okay. So I have a couple questions, but my first one is simple. Uh, you're right. I didn't see this until you showed me. So I wonder how you, when did you first see it? Like, do you know why it hit your feed? Uh, did it come yes. from one of your more conservative sites first and then you found it in mainstream media? I saw a a picture that was used as part of the story being made fun of in memes in my Instagram. Okay, so it was a more conservative stream that brought it to you first. Yes. Yeah, from there, I was like, I don't understand this meme. And then something said Evergreen College, and so I searched that. And then what came to the top of the list was the um, Washington Post and Wall Street, or in New York Times, opinion pages, like, essentially condemning the behavior of the protesters and saying like, like uh, calling for someone's resignation because they don't believe in your ideas, like doesn't make sense. Please stop. You're confusing people. Yeah. Okay. So the other question that gets it more, I think will bring more of a conversation. So I listened to not all the Joe Rogan thing was like two and a half hours long. I listened to a good chunk of it, but did not fit all of that in, but you're right. I heard that part where it's, his name is Brett. Weinstein. Yes. Yeah, where he basically said he was talking about kind of bastardizing the idea of an ally. The the kind of theory that he laid out is there's this group of it used to be uh, women and minorities used to be the kind of collective term for anyone that like wasn't a straight white man. And his idea is that now like that's too big of a group and so they want to whatever these ultra leftists want to narrow that down to like not include white women and not include certain groups. But if you still want to be part of this 
I don't know, leftist movement, in order to join them, you have to call yourself an ally. And what he said is that I think they're perverting the concept of an ally because allies should be equal partners in whatever you're striving toward progress is. But these allies have to be subordinate, what's his word, subordinate to whatever the other entity is, the people of color, or in this case, the population protesting him. And we should be specific. The He talks about allies as like one piece of it. And part of what's interesting is like, I am not involved in the kind of world of the left. And so I've heard people use the phrase ally, but no one's ever defined it in any positive or negative light to me ever. So maybe, maybe we could do that. But the second piece was the reason why they want to exclude or the reason why he believes they're trying to exclude white women and Asian men, I believe was the other group that he called yeah. out Yeah, um, is because uh, those particular groups have started having more economic success. And so the group isn't too big because it's too big as like an inherent nature of the size of the group. It's too big because it should only include those that have not had some sort of economic success. At least that's what, that's the way I heard it. So is he defining these groups, all, all groups by economic success? Because I would imagine within any subset of people, there's people on every end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So if his argument is a, a significant portion of white women and Asian men fit this model, therefore, therefore we don't want any people in that group to participate, would you handpick people in some other groups who maybe are a lesser percentage and say they're not allowed to participate either? So I'm not sure that he's putting forth the groups. I think he's just identifying that there is some tension in this women and minorities label that has existed for a long time and has a like con like has a, a connotation to it that has been both like economic or uh, I would say politically not as powerful and also has been economically not as powerful. Um, and part of the either way he was just identifying a symptom of i guess the trying to redefine what a minority is and uh who can be helpful and who's allowed to receive benefits um or sympathy and and he's not wrong like there are different types of discriminatory practices that impact different like populations differently so yes. like that's a fact and then he's identifying a reaction to that disparity, even among minorities, basically like a contest for we've been more oppressed. So you need to make focus on us for a while, which I actually do think like they're, they're striving toward like constant progress as like one group of women and minorities at all times is not, that's not the way it should always work. There are certain human rights that should just be afforded to people, but then there are also like, there is value in recognizing specific groups facing to specific kinds of disparity and like, okay. So like the LGBT community, L G B and T and all the other letters that follow it, there are distinct differences in the type of fears and discrimination and concerns that each of those letters face. And the outstanding, like the easiest one that's, that's outstanding is trans people because that's a gender minority. Whereas, you know, LGB is more of a sexual orientation minority and so there's, there's debates in the LGBT community of the human rights campaign, which has done a ton for the LGBT community, was criticized for a long time and I think still is in some circles that they weren't 
fighting for trans people and like as effectively as they fought for white gay men. There are disparities even within these groups that are working for progress, what I would call it. And that should oh, that's be recognized and it should be discussed and debated. But I, and so getting back to the subordinate thing, uh, I don't think I'm going to say that. I think working toward equality means not subordinating any group to any other group. However, there is a not irrational strain of argument that basically says in order to actually be treated equally now, there does need to be special consideration for groups that have faced historical discrimination of, you know, X degrees of severity. So it's not just like, oh, let everybody, I don't know, I'm not trying to think about it, but it's not just like, let everybody access colleges equally, but wait, let's actually prioritize people of color for a while or indefinitely because there's, that's the only way we people of color might catch up. Does that make sense? Sure, but the argument there is provide a bias to overcome another bias. And so the indefinitely part there is like, as a person who thinks is the thing that scares me because whenever someone says like, we need to preference me forever, that is, that's like a super, you need to pull up a lot of scrutiny on that. Whereas if you, if you pick something that said, what we're going to do is we're going to take this factor and we're going to try and make it better. And when it gets to a certain level, we're going to start tapering it back. So for example, it might be admission rates. It might be, um, it might be like a percentage of people who complete college. Like you could pick a handful of things that like potentially could map to uh, better, but then, but then like it needs to scale. So the best example I always like here is when people talk about um, helping the poor get into college. So the poor is not a minority that is constant. It is an ever-changing set of people, especially based well, on how we change immigration. Well, it's consistently populated by a certain demographic. It, no, it's of... consistent. Well, well, it's consistently populated by a changing demographic, which is one of the reasons why help for the poor is so interesting. Is that like as we change, as we change lots of things about the world, there will always be a subset of people that is poor, and you can help them, and that changes. And if that group becomes successful as like a subgroup, so like I'm thinking of like the Irish. Right. Yeah. Like if we said that yeah. the Irish were are been systemically oppressed and we want to give benefits to the Irish forever, like that doesn't make any sense. Whereas you need to pick another metric that can like be improved upon and then fade away. Then the, okay. the benefits can fade away. Okay, I want to go back to your what you were saying about as a person that thinks it concerns you to indefinitely preference one group over the other. I understand that. And you were saying basically it makes sense. Let's preference this group until we help them catch up. And then, then let's reconsider that prioritization. As a perfectly rational thinking human being, I understand and that that sounds right. However, and I have like information and lots of back, lots of science to back this up. Unconscious biases, the science behind unconscious biases, indicate that no matter how how good we think our systems are, human beings will carry unconscious biases, not deliberately outward racism or things like that. Human beings will carry unconscious biases and they will perpetuate inequity in doing so. That my best reference here is a, a guy named Shankar Vedantam. I'll post his name and links and everything. He's an NPR social science reporter. Um, he actually came and spoke at my company, so I 
got to hear his talk and have lunch with him and everything. And he he's done a ton of research on this. And he considers like the idea of unconscious biases. There are, there are plenty of like overt biases and everybody, I mean, unless you're like truly just a happy racist, doesn't want overt biases. We'll work to get rid of overt biases, but unconscious biases stay because of the systems that build them up. And that's why saying, well, let's fix it until the system, until it's, it, we make up for it. We won't. Human beings will carry these problems with us in our minds no matter how good we think we are. So I won't argue with unconscious biases. I, I we, we talk on a semi-regular basis. I also believe the science there, it's a new growing field. So we should expect some set of things to be invalidated and changed. But like sure. the core idea appears to be fairly durable. Uh, the problem is by inserting preference, you're actually inserting an, a bias. So the like classic example is um, you allow somebody into medical school who otherwise would not get in. And therefore they're not as good of a, doctor because they're at the bottom of their class and there's like also lots of evidence to show that people at the bottom of of a group of people like so if you if you went if you took like a medium school and a good school if you put the same person in a medium school and put them at the top they will have a better chance of the future than they will put them at the bottom of a very good school and that has to do with like uh, uh, how you compare to your peers and whether or not you think you were as good. And there's like a bunch of other things that make that happen. Um, but if you, if you do that, let's just say you add strong racial preferences uh, to getting your MD, then what you will find is that people will not choose doctors that had those strong racial preferences because they believe that they are not as good because they are not as good a lot of the time. And what really sucks is for the set of people who are of that who received that preference but also would have gotten in anyway is that their economic futures are actually hindered because of that preference. This is what came up in the Texas racial profiling case that went to the Supreme Court. There was a lot of evidence around this particular thing. And Are you talking about the admissions the to UT case? Yeah, they they referenced it, but there was there was there was just there was an earlier case, a Supreme Court case where they talked about this and it had the level of scrutiny that you would expect from a Supreme Court brief. That's all. Yeah, you, by the way, you are totally the ghost of Antonin Scalia talking about putting people into schools where they will find the most success. Maybe I got that from reading one of his I'm, opinions. That I'm, is entirely I'm possible. sure that you did. <laughs> There's no uh, way I came up with such an interesting idea on my own. Carrie, <laughs> uh, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I was just wondering, because um, I, I actually, I feel that I'm agreeing with Reed on a lot of this stuff. That's good. Reed's very yeah. smart and makes good arguments. <laughs> good. Thank you for that validation. Um, <laughs> no, because I guess I'm curious because I understand what you're talking about with unconscious bias. But if the point of that is it's unchanging and it's not going to go away, I guess my question is how does that impact then how we treat groups that are subjected to unconscious bias? Well, Reed said, Reed said you're responding to one bias by introducing another which is true. And I'm saying we should be okay with that. In fact, Shankar in his talk was saying he's aware, like he's taken, there's these, this unconscious bias test that I think Yale put together. I don't know. I'll post it for us. And it's fascinating. You should take it. It, it measures how much you associate good and bad qualities with different types of people. There's a one for gender and one for race. And I think there's others. And he's, he says he's taken the gender test, like hundreds of times and he's always the same amount of bias towards men versus women even though he knows and he can't like he can't undo it 
And so he says he knows that about himself. So when he's considering guests for his show, he will consciously think, I need to have women on. I need to pick people of color, which is he is introducing a bias to counteract the one that he knows is inherent. And I am fine with that. I'm not saying that we should just like hire women regardless of qualifications, but I think it is fair. And I actually do agree that, you know, when you're hiring a position for your company, you should stop and say, let's start by pulling these women and these people of color out of this pile and reading these first. Like, let's be fresh on these people. Like, let's make sure we bring them in. I heard a study. And then to your point, read about how, I don't know how to respond to if people know that there's like special admission for certain populations then people will assume that that whole population performs less. But to yep. your point of like performance. So there was some study that the NFL, there was some, rule that the NFL put in place that you have to interview one person of color for any head coaching job or something like this. I might be misquoting it exactly. Not hire, but you have to, you have to have one in the interview round at least, which led to more hiring of black or, you know, uh, uh, people of color leading uh, NFL teams just because getting to that first round of the interview is usually like the hardest thing. So there were more black head coaches. The average performance of people of color leading NFL teams went down because there was more of them. And previously the only like black or Hispanic coaches that got to the final interview round were the best because that's how you, that they were good enough to overcome the unconscious biases of the entire interview process. So I agree with you that the average performance will go down because we're no longer hand selecting the absolute cream of the crop from these underprivileged populations, underrepresented populations. Oh, my point wasn't that the average would go down. It's that it would suppress the wages of the very best, which sucks. Like, I mean, in general, like, you, you know me, I tend to think very much into the very top percentiles of things, yeah, the very edge of the bell curve. That is the way I operate. Uh, and so the idea of taking the people who are the very best and like building a system that suppresses their wages, just like, especially like suppresses the wages of the group that you're trying to like help. That just seems mean. Well, but it, this illustrates our ideological divide. Sure. I would rather have like more people find moderate success than, than make sure that all the best people get the best stuff. But anyway, we've gone way beyond the original topic here and also way beyond our time. So we're just going to have to table this and move on to our second topic. Okay, so facts on the ground for this case. Uh, the Supreme Court announced in June that it will be hearing this case in October. So we are, we are either way behind or way ahead of the news, whichever makes us look better. And there are several cases similar to this, but the specific case that's going to go to the Supreme Court is coming out of Colorado, and it's about a cake baker. His name is Jack Phillips, and he's the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop. And he had customers that came in and wanted to buy a cake for their gay wedding, and Jack Phillips declined because he doesn't want to make cakes for gay weddings. And like I said, I'm less interested in litigating this actual case, although I'll lay out a few more facts about it, and more interested in exploring the idea of so the easy answer is, should you bake a cake for gays? Yes. Whether or not you're doing it because, <laughs> like, I, like we're not going to debate that. Should you bake a cake for gay people? Absolutely. Because if you bake cakes, you should be, like, happy to give cakes to anybody. 
if not for a moral argument for the economic one and for the capitalistic one, if you're paying customers, let them pay you for your product. The interesting question here is, does that need to be required by law? So my, my gut says that this is a poorly written law. Um, what it, the goal of the law was to like emphatically show support for gay people, and it did that, and it was politically successful. But the the what I would argue most people feel in their gut is that there is nothing that says that you have to make me a cake. But there there is not a federal law requiring businesses to serve people based on sexual, regardless of sexual orientation. In Colorado, there is a state law that is pretty emphatic and i mean i'm sure justice gorsuch will have lots of artful language to dissent or agree possibly but there's a public accommodations carve out so if if your if your business is oriented toward the public which they kind of loosely define which is part of the problem here you have to serve all races equally because that actually came out of the sit-ins in the early 60s which mm-hmm. i think about a lot with these cake with these like like kind of silly cases about yeah cakes that's and actually one of the examples i was going to use when i talked about disagreeing with reed well that's that where yeah that's where the sit-ins matter here because i i have like i have already said i don't really think this should be a law i don't think you should be required to get your cake to be you know operate your business for gay people or like you know serve them equally i think you should again but i don't think it should be law but i like definitely don't think that you should be allowed to just not serve black people which is this to me should be the same. It's not the way that our constitution and our Supreme Court decisions have come down. Race and sexual orientation are not equally protected, which is why such a debate can exist, but I don't think it should exist. I think those are just two different identities that everybody deserves equal rights. And yet I feel differently about exactly how the laws should be read between those those two specific identities. And then sorry, one more thing. Uh, the authority of the 1964 Civil Rights Act where it comes to public accommodations is actually grounded in the Constitution's Commerce Clause, um, which is why it applies to businesses. And like I said, I'm less interested in the laws here. I want to kind of isolate what my like line is. I'm thoroughly confused by the fact that I don't think you should, like, I totally agree with the idea of not discriminating based on race and that should be in law and thankfully it is. And yet I don't feel the same way about uh, like the, basically the same idea that would actually apply to me personally. And I was starting to have this conversation with my sister the other day and she mentioned, so Texas just signed a law or governor just signed a law that adoption agencies can refuse to work with gay couples because of sincerely held religious beliefs. And she said, it's like the same thing as that, which and that there's my red line somewhere between cakes, like refusing to serve me a cake because I'm LGBT and refusing to help me find a child to adopt somewhere in between there is where I want this law to kick in because I mean, first of all, these adoption agencies are working in tandem with the state. So there's a whole bunch of different questions. Well, let's pretend it's a purely private adoption agency. So it's the same question of, oh, we're just a privately run business. We don't have to serve you. Can I offer a hypothesis? Yeah. It has to do with scarcity. Again, the reason why the cake thing doesn't bother you is, A, it doesn't feel like it's that important. Like on the scale of things, you know, being able to have children is a thing that matters deeply to people, especially people who can't have children on their own. 
So like, that's a thing that matters being able to have a home, have a job. Like these are things that are super important. And then the second piece is, so like, it's like severity. And then it's also like other places you can go scarcity. So the second piece is like, there, there are lots of jobs, but there are less jobs that fit your particular background experience, your particular education, where you want to live. Like that number actually gets really small, pretty quick. And you're competing with a bunch of other people. And so there's like a lot of scarcity there. Um, there's not scarcity in the cake industry for weddings. There's not sca- there, but there is scarcity when it comes to successful adoptions because adoptions are super expensive and they take a long time. And yeah, that's a very good point. And this this is the problem of the law being an incredibly blunt instrument because I want a law somewhere in there to protect me. But the like, how do you determine where the boundary of scarcity becomes? Like, oh no, no, that that's where it should kick in. I don't know how to answer that question. Well, I guess I'm just still really confused about why you would even want that that line to like I understand the idea of it's an emotional hot button for you because it is scarce and it is severe. But why would you deny yourself lesser rights and only focus on those which are most scarce and most severe? I guess that's my biggest question about not considering yourself a protected class. Like your your right to go in and adopt a puppy versus your right to go in and adopt a child, there's one you're going to fight harder for, but why would you deny yourself the other one? So that's a fair question, which is why I think fighting for cakes matters because because of what you're saying. Like, it shouldn't, it, sh- it should just be a protected class. This shouldn't be allowed. But I think where it, it con- conflicts with me personally is because I do actually agree, in some cases, that overregulation is a thing. Just setting up laws doesn't actually change people. It doesn't actually influence things. It would have, like, I'm so glad for the right to marriage, equal marriage. But traditionally, overregulation has always happened before social change has happened. If you think about all the the groups that you mentioned that are protected under the Equal Rights Amendment, for the majority of them, the legislation happened years before society got to the point that they were willing to accept those things independent of being forced to by the government. I mean, but that was a law that was that was passed, right? That there were still enough votes to make that happen. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's that why happened. we have those people who are yelling about activist judges. Mm-hmm. That's what's that's where it's coming from, right? Is you know, we could say the country wasn't ready for gay marriage. A lot of people have, you know, made that argument when that was up for debate. And saying this shouldn't be something that's handed down on high. This should be something that comes from the bottom through local elections and through referendums. But the truth is, the way it happened is it was a federal mandate, essentially. The federal government decided that it was now illegal. Now it's legal. Now the rest of the country is slowly catching up to accepting it. And and I would argue, like, neither of you apparently are worried about this, but I don't like when the government tells me how to think, uh, I don't believe they should be allowed to tell me how to think. And so I I, act, I absolutely worry about giving the government the authority to do this. You're welcome to come join my libertarian camp that says that the person shouldn't be allowed to make cakes and like also people shouldn't be allowed, they should be allowed to deny people for whatever reason you would like in your diner. And then like other people are also welcome to protest on the sidewalk outside of your business and call you funny names. This is the world I would choose to live in where the government does not have as much coercive power and you have to deal with the realities of the of economics. And I can accept that 
there are lots of places where we do not have a very market-based system where you then have to put in other terrible laws. But like my base says that, no, you don't have the right to get a cake baked by anyone. And also people can deny your venues, but then like those people lose your money and like that matters. And America is really good at making money. And so it'll fix itself. The only place that this doesn't work is with poor people. And I haven't figured out a solution for that yet. Right. And I guess that's my, my point when I'm looking at this and the reason I disagreed with you not necessarily because I do think, you know, there's plenty of places for you to buy a cake. If some place wants to deny a subset of the population their business, the, that's, you know, the market will handle it. I agree with that, except in those areas in which case the, in which there's not enough competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess when I think about these laws, my mind immediately goes to those areas. You know, so subsets of the population where the vast majority of people don't believe in equal rights for gay people. Um, not to call any states out by name. I'm thinking about them in my head. But where you would have to drive thousands, hundreds of miles to get to a place that would sell you a wedding cake. To me, that's the undue burden, right? Like, I, I know I'm using like, language that's kind of related to, to abortions, which is an entirely different hot button issue. But I know that the legal challenge for that is like, what's, what is an undue burden? Well, so... Part of the part of what's helpful in thinking about the other side is to recognize when there's a behavior that maybe you don't want to accommodate that you would like the choice not to and have somebody else forcing it upon you. And so there are a couple of states, very conservative states, maybe those states that you are thinking about, who have thought about adding whether or not you're carrying a gun to the list of protected status things that you're not allowed to discriminate on. Um, so does that change your opinion about who should accommodate and what? So the fact that you are carrying a gun means that a business could not discriminate on whether or not they could serve you or, or hire you or give you a loan or give you medical services or anything else. You're not Can allowed to use that businesses discriminate now based on that? Yeah. yeah. In fact, Texas has an explicit sign oh, that yeah, is the we would that. like to discriminate you sign. Carrie, I'm going to let you answer that because Reed has swayed my, my concern over guns effectively over the years. Yeah, I would – I mean – Maybe because I grew up in Texas, I am not concerned about having guns in different environments outside of ones where I think it's an actual threat to safety, which I think is the big difference between our discussion about LGBT rights and our discussion about gun ownership, is one of the two is a direct threat to my life if misused, and it's not gay people getting wedding cakes. (laughs) Oh, I I would argue the big difference is, like, I can choose whether or not to carry a gun, whereas, like, I'm under the impression that generally you can't change your race or your sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Even if that is not absolutely true, please no one send me hate mail. Uh, It's it's, it's mostly true. Um, Yeah, it's mostly true. (laughs) So if it's, like, so that tends to be, like, the bigger ideological difference. But the point is, is, like, when you say that the government has the ability to force businesses to do this, then, like, you should really think about, is there behavior that the government might force you to do that might have a political majority at some point in time that would really bother you and instead you would like them to have less power? And yeah. also, taking power away from the government is generally a good idea. Which I feel like is a different issue. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, like, I, I do constantly think about your first point about, is this something the government would one day force me to do that I would disagree with? And it scares me, and that's why I don't take the government getting additional control over my life lightly right like i i 
try to think through the implications of is there another way for us to accomplish the same goal without putting it on the government um which i'm still not convinced in in a small town or in a very homogenous society in parts of the country it effectively does fall to the government so i'll wrap up with the sit-ins because i read up on the on the civil rights sit-ins because i knew we were going to reference them to this conversation and it was an economic effectively protest well it, it became that it was obviously a social protest you know nonviolent action and then it, it kind of caught on and it spread and it became an economic detriment to the businesses that were de- like that wouldn't desegregate their lunch counters and you know the business finally caved in most places Tennessee good old Tennessee hung on real late um, as might be expected then it was codified in law you know obviously every racist in America hadn't changed their mind on desegregated lunch counters but it began as a civil uh, action it became an economic burden for the you know in for the market and then our representatives codified it in law so I think that's like a pretty good progression as to like Reed saying, I don't, we don't want the government to tell us what to think, but I'm okay if the government's going to kind of ratify what seems, that is what the point of representative, representative, representative government kind of ratifying, Oh, this is the way we seem to be working now. Let's ratify this action. But at the same time, like, do we really need to keep fighting over? It's frustrating, basically waiting to be treated equally. So I understand like I, I love, I, I'm grateful for the uh, like Supreme Court decisions that aren't necessarily ratifying a majority opinion. They're forming an opinion, enforcing a system that then actually helps facilitate a, like facilitate changing minds. I don't know, but then it also, if you disagreed with, if you disagreed to begin with, it kind of may, maybe makes you angrier. It uh, the touch points are different. You know, the touch point around marriage equality said, like, listen, you're not losing anything because these other people have have a franchise that they should have had in the first place. Right. Like that there is a there is a get like mind your own damn business argument. Right. Which is not a legal argument, but it is an emotional one. Whereas like, no, we're going to tell you how to run your business is like a little bit more of a touch point. And an even further touch point is everyone must have a gay friend. Like, like the, the, just like the level, the, how deep you go into someone's life, there's like a bunch of scales here and, you know, messing with how someone operates a very small business will matter way more to them than like some other franchise that they didn't particularly care about in the first place. Yeah. I don't know how to conclude here. You should bake cakes for gay people. And, oh, by the way, if you're gay, you should buy a cake from somebody who really likes gay people because <laughs> it's an important day for you and don't deal with this nonsense that's that's a great that's great thank you reed you're welcome <laughs> okay that was really fun but i'm well i'm looking forward to this bunker talk because i think reed and carrie will have a really good time with it i don't think i'm going to be any fun during it but we'll see you will it's mandated I, fun i'm not like <laughs> I'm. <laughs> the government's telling you to have fun you must have I'm... fun. <laughs> we'll try. Uh, Carrie, why don't you set it up for us? Okay. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about apocalypse bunkers. 
Um, for a number of reasons. One is I went to South Dakota recently and we went to the Minuteman II missile silos, which is now a historical site um, on the National National Park Service runs. And essentially, there's a couple parts to it. And because we booked months and months and months in advance, one of the parts was we were able to go down underground into the actual nuclear bunkers that were built in the 70s. Um, and it was fascinating. Like, I I thought it was really interesting. I would never want to live there. Um, so if the apocalypse happened, I might just go back up to the surface because it was a little bit grim. It was very, very 1970s. But it kind of made me think about what would what would I take? What would make me happy if I had to live in a bunker for the rest of my life? And then I saw an article on BuzzFeed, too, about a luxury bunker maker and how their sales have skyrocketed recently so they had said in from 2016 over 2015 sales had increased 500 percent and then the last three months of 2016 which is essentially kind of october november december so think election season um, sales had increased 300 percent in those months again so clearly it's something that not just, I'm not the only one who's thinking about it, and there are people with a lot of money who are thinking about it. Read to your point, I did go and take the BuzzFeed quiz about what does your taste in luxury nuclear bunkers say about you, and it said that I would die, that I would not survive the apocalypse. So clearly... It also said I would die, but it mm. said my girlfriend would live, and she picked a ball pit as her way to slide into a ball pit as her entrance method. That's awesome. Yeah, I, th I think I had a slide, like a little spinny slide. That's fun. So, Amy, we're going to start with you because you mandated fun. What I would what I would put in a, in a bunker? Yeah, here's the rules. It has to be something that is realistic for you. So let's say you can liquidate all your assets and you can go in on it with people that you already know. But we're not going to say like, oh, yeah, I'm obviously going to call Bill Gates and he and I are going to get together and build a nuclear bunker. Am I in this bunker with the intention of surviving some kind of apocalypse? What do you think? Well, honestly, I would just rather die. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> this is what I wow. mean by no See, like, Now we've already learned something up. about you. <laughs> <laughs> like if if we're if we're truly entering an apocalyptic future where only a, you know several thousand people will live worldwide, like I'd rather not be one of those people. Like I'm done. I'm fine. <laughs> does it does it matter how long the apocalypse lasts? Um, like let's say everyone dies, but radiation levels and everything is back to normal in two years. Or or maybe it's a virus, and ten percent of the population naturally is inoculated. Mm-hmm. I don't like I don't know. So I read you know, I've read post apocalyptic books where basically that's like what happened, read ten percent of people survive. And then like think of all the practical concerns. You know, the population of the earth has been decimated, literally. No, no, no. No. More it's, than decimated. It, it's been like re inverse decimated, not non indonated. <laughs> Whatever. The population of the earth is like nothing. And so people are like vastly spread out. Even if even if you come out of your bunker, people are really far apart. Presumably, like most of the technology doesn't work anymore. It would take 
months to like maybe meet another human being who probably frankly is not going to be a nice person because we're in the post-apocalyptic world like it just none of like surviving the apocalypse doesn't sound appealing to me nor does living in a bunker sound appealing so your your assumptions are all all, all out of whack so it's not going to take a long time think how many people live near you one in ten of those people survive also like yes it's post-apocalyptic and so like some subset of people are going to be mean but also like some subset of people are already mean and there are lots of people that are nice and the your your real issue is that you know systems that didn't have any redundancy because we depended on a world economy are now gone uh and so like everything's fine except for you can't make latex anymore and so we don't have rubber gloves and like that's a problem um it's it's those kinds of like worldwide economy things that become more difficult yeah yeah which I don't know. So we're, I guess we're in the bunkers to survive. So like you, all you got to do is get food, water, something to entertain your mind so that you don't go crazy. Like, it doesn't seem like that difficult of a proposition. Oh man. I'm I'm telling you, (laughs) I'm not good at this game. That being said, I just took the quiz and it said I would live. So. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good at the game, but I'm, I can beat the BuzzFeed quiz. But what's hard about what's hard about stocking a bunker? Like you get enough food, you yeah, like you stock okay, it with the so, essentials. Um, so the closest I've I've done to living in to living in an apocalypse is I went to a cabin that I built in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, where there were no other people for an entire week, mm-hmm. um, and I had to plan a trip for eight people, uh, and. I planned that trip over the course of a year and involved a lot of supplies that were only available because we had a good functioning worldwide economy, including like power is super difficult to do. And gasoline is actually heavy when you have to fly it. And Oh, by the way, we had to have a pilot fly us out to the middle of nowhere. So like, I'm not like food and water are hard problems to solve, especially because most of the world lives in major or lots of the world lives in major cities where there isn't the ability to get food from wherever it is to wherever they are. So like problem number one, food's super difficult for most of the world. Uh, the second problem is water is really difficult because we have a fairly efficient system of transmitting water and of water purification that happens at the city level, but that all requires power. And again, post an apocalypse that there's power is an issue because resources are an issue. So, you don't have power, you don't have water, you don't have food. But, like, let's assume that you solve all those problems. You still have, like, other really fundamental problems in that the way people used to get information probably is not as not reliable anymore. Um, and so you have to go, you have to, like, fight all of the problems that we fought prior to the internet, which was, like, people making stuff up and having no one have any way to verify it. And And, like, these are... I mean, there's a whole bunch of, like, informational problems that you have to solve if you want to survive. It's a super hard problem. Well, when you're in your bunker, you don't care about getting information. You just want to be in yes, the bunker. Yes, you do. Yeah, you so, want to know when um, you need to get out of the bunker. Yep. You would also want incoming information because let's assume that the people in your bunker don't know everything they need to know. And, like, as we have seen human history progress, the areas that have had the most progress have been the ones that had the most amount of trade. And the reason why was because there were people who could talk and could, and uh, ideas that were useful could spread. So one of the key advantages you could have, if you were designing a bunker 
would be communication to other parts of the world. But how would you, how would we achieve all of this? Well, the nice thing about satellites is people put them up in space and they expect them to live there for a while. So I can't put a satellite into space, but in theory I could buy some sort of internet service plan that, because also getting data to and from space is hard. So like maybe they turn on a bit that says this is valid for 10 years and then I can continue to use satellite internet, which would be great. So like, wait, are you saying you'd invest in satellite internet now in the event of apocalypse? I'm saying I already have done that in the event of a local disaster. (laughs) (laughs) So just to like, I'm, I am a little bit on the preppy side. So I live in uh, Northern California and San Francisco and the likelihood that there is a fairly major earthquake while I live here is like not small. Uh, and there are also a handful of people around who were here in 1989, the year I was born, but also the last time there was a major earthquake when like it blew out all the windows of all the skyscrapers and everything like that. Um, and so like, yes, I've set up my world such that when there is a major earthquake, I kind of know what to do. Carrie, how would you prepare your bunker? So when I think about this, I kind of like imagining terrible things happening, which I'm sure is part of the reason I thought this would be interesting. And I, I mean, I kind of think of it as a philosophical question. So there's the food, the water, the power, any kind of trade manuals, assuming that when you leave your bunker, you're not going to simply be able to go down to the store and buy things anymore. You're going to have to make things for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all functional. And then I guess my questions always revolve around what else do you put in there? So do you spend all of your money collecting rare books with the idea of preserving civilization? Or do you spend that money putting extra beds in there to get as many people in the bunker with you as possible? And like, I think that's kind of why I like this question, why I think it's really interesting. And then if you don't have enough beds for everyone you know, who do you put in your bunker with you? Which is never a good question to have. You both seem to assume that your bunker would include other people i wasn't sure like you what you bunk with your family i assume so i mean like to your point like what you said if i was in a bunker by myself and i didn't know how long the the apocalypse was gonna last i'd rather just not survive it right i mean like i'd of course love to save my family i just didn't know like i had a lot of specification questions about bunker preparedness (laughs) a sentence i never thought i'd heard you you say (laughs) like i honestly i was prepping for this and i started looking around my apartment which i have optimized like i've optimized my apartment at this point i've been in this new place and i love it but i was looking around my apartment and i was like i'd like to bring that cup and i like the pillows on my bed (laughs) like like i wasn't (laughs) like (laughs) but you know I know what I want in my bunker, but adding another person, which I would, again, want to save my family, want to save my loved ones, even the loved ones that, like, wouldn't want to be in a bunker with me. Like, I'd I'd ask them to join my bunker because I like them. But, like, that totally changes the equation because if you want this bunker to... There's, like, the functional, what you need part of it, and then there's the whole social strategy and, you know, concerns and what works for, I don't know, your sister that that you don't care about having. Oh yeah. man. My, my thought immediately went to who, who do I know? And who has the set of skills that we're going to need to be able to like hmm. do things that matter? Because 
I'm already working on the assumption that I'm going to survive the, nu- the the whatever the apocalypse is, and then I want to run whatever set of organization exists afterwards. So, like, how do I set up my bunker such that we win post-nuclear apocalypse? Which is why I love this question, because I feel like it shows, it, like, it illustrates so much about who you are as a person. Because <laughs> I didn't even think about functionality when you mentioned not having power. I was like, oh yeah, I guess there wouldn't be power. In my mind, immediately was like, how many movies do I need so I don't go crazy? Um, or like, do I buy a first hand, like, do I buy all of the reproductions of artwork that I can get my hands on and in... Even if I don't have the original, it's just be like, the Mona Lisa kind of look like that, guys, a thousand years from now. Oh. So that might be interesting. Having the Mona Lisa in the bunker? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I mean, the question is, like, if you don't know how long the apocalypse is going to last, it might not be there when you get out. In so the, you're concerned about, person. like, preserving yeah. things? Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I might preserve, like wikipedia i know i can download it and it's free and so like maybe i would spend a bunch of money to like buy a office copy printer and print out like the all the articles on wikipedia sorted by popularity Mm. right because you said it had to be within like our financial means yeah and that feels like a thing that could be both useful to me in in like private and also be useful for society later Right. Because yeah. that's that's the golden mix, right? Like, I don't think my $5 reproduction of Mona Lisa is going to do me any good unless I trade it with the mutants when we get out. But I could see Wikipedia being useful. But let's, to the point of revealing interesting character traits, let's try to wrap up by talking okay. about um, luxury, what luxury item we might bring. Like, forget practicality. Oh, yeah. What would you want? So I watched uh, one of the promotional videos from one of these luxury bunker companies. And aside from just being super creepy and weird, it had this one room that I actually really liked, which was a room that made you feel like you were outside. So it was a pool, had deck chairs, and then the ceiling and walls were painted to look like the sky. And it would actually change color and it would have clouds come in or storms pass through to simulate being outside and i thought that i would probably want that as my luxury item so i don't get claustrophobic oh nice that's luxurious and and practical but that's smart okay so i honestly i told you not good at this game couldn't settle on a luxury item but i'll tell you my thought process and where it ended my first thought for a luxury item was bringing my yoga mat probably because i was holding my yoga mat (laughs) (laughs) but then it immediately occurred to me you can do yoga literally naked you don't need like any props for that so that would be a dumb wasted luxury item so not that I thought about like books but honestly unless I could also bring my glasses and I don't like I like listening to things I do audiobooks so books would not be a great luxury item for me I had a I dove into um pillows for a minute because I don't want just a bunch of pillows I hate wasted pillows I hate the idea of throw pillows but I have like a specific pillow formula that I like for my bed. So if I could have exactly that pillow formula, like indefinitely, it would be nice. And then I finally sort of settled on magical access to all the podcasts. Because I think that would keep me entertained and would help me learn stuff. 
it's like what I like to do with my leisure time now is just listen to things that I can learn about. And following this conversation, it makes me think that I would be able to kind of retain something for posterity. So I think podcasts and some pillows. <laughs> so Amy and I think very much alike. Um, my, my first reaction was I want my very comfortable, like, memory foam bed because i hate being uncomfortable and it takes up too much space because it'd be it'd be a king and we'd be in a bunker and there wouldn't be enough room so that was like my like emotional pull i also thought about like a dog because dogs could be great and it could be a lot of fun um but if i really really wanted just like something luxurious i also went to podcasts i thought how fun Aww. would it be to have a I didn't actually think magical access to all the podcasts, but if I could just, if I could have like an, an old school iPod touch and I could just download as many podcasts as could fit in a hard drive. And as long as I could get five volts to it that we could run, I could keep that charged and listen to those with a pair of headphones. That would be, uh, so I'm stealing Amy's. That's adorable. I love that we both kind of started and ended in the same place. Even though our other approach to bunkers is clearly different. Yep. Cool. Okay. Uh, let's move into hope. So I have three, my partisan one breaking news. As of this recording, the Senate's second attempt at healthcare, which makes the third attempt for Republicans overall appears to be dead again for the moment, which I'm happy. Like I want better healthcare for everybody. I want to have that discussion, blah, blah, blah. I was concerned about this bill specifically. So I'm kind of glad that it's doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. I am sincerely really thrilled that Reed and Leah, his girlfriend, will be in Texas pretty soon. So that makes me happy. And the actual thing I want to dwell on for just a moment is I've been taking all these trips lately. And my my most recent one was a trip to the Dominican Republic with a, a leadership program I've been doing. And like uh, saying that it gave me hope is not quite right, but recognizing that it was incredibly valuable and really interesting and educational and frankly like fun and relaxing and at certain times and then uh, kind of meaningful and challenging at others i'm grateful that i got to do that i wrote up a little uh reflection for it that i'll, I'll post a link with all of our stuff um that y'all should read if you're interested in that but those are my my things that gave me hope recently um so mine is that I have had a crazy couple of weeks at work um, for a number of reasons, but this Thursday I'm presenting this project that um, I it's really unique that someone on our team would be able to start and end a project of this size because they usually take anywhere from nine months to a year to complete and our rotations are about a year and a half, so it's rare that you would come in and then it would start, and then it would last the entire duration and finish before you have to vote it again. Um, and that's the project that I'm presenting on Thursday. So it kind of feels like my baby in a sense. I think I'm the only person on our team in the last five years who this has happened. Um, so I'm really excited about that, and I feel like it's a good... It's going to happen almost exactly on my one-year anniversary at the company, um, so it just feels like a good omen as well. Um, and then on a personal note talking about having dogs in the bunker my parents just got a puppy and it's the cutest puppy ever and i will fight anyone who says otherwise (laughs) um it's a a mini blue male australian shepherd 
and his name is Cooper, which I thought was strange until I realized my parents named him after Cooperstown, um, New York, which is the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, fun. Cool. So what gives me hope, um, I recently uh, did my first self-guided whitewater rafting adventure. Uh, and what gives me hope is that, you know, our country's done n- not a terrible job of of keeping some parts of the world wild and being able to go someplace where there aren't any other people and uh, know that you're slightly in danger and that your safety's up to you. Every single time it happens, it uh, makes me feel uh, better about the country, better about myself, better about the people I'm with. Um, and so... I would encourage you. What gives me hope is that there are still places where you can go and learn to have to figure things out on your own and that it's worth, it's worth doing. So I encourage everyone to do that or another activity where you can go and be completely in charge of your own safety. Hmm. I'm glad you got to do that. I, I don't have that desire whatsoever. (laughs) So as part of a diversity of experiences, I recommend doing it one time. Just if you can take any adventure where you are absolutely, you can't depend on anything else or anyone to come save you, uh, it actually, it will change the way you think for the rest of your life. Just traveling alone, no, that doesn't count. Because traveling alone, there's a lot of resources available to you. You mean like going out in the wilderness and taking care of myself? Sure, but it doesn't have to be like actually that far from people. This weekend, we were, you know, only five or six miles from a major city, but at the time, there was no one we could communicate with because we had no cell service, and all the problems we faced, we had to solve on our own. And if we ran out of sunlight, then there wasn't any more light. And those are the type, like, you just have to, it's just a different way of thinking. Hmm. Okay, well, that's that's a challenge I'll try to take on one day. Okay. Um, Reed, thank you so much for coming back. This was really fun. We have so much content. I'm going to have to figure out what to do with it all. To everybody, all of our listeners, you can find us at funfactspodcast.com and on Facebook and Twitter at funfactspodcast. Uh, you should take the BuzzFeed Apocalypse quiz and tell us if you would survive or not. Zencaster is our call and recording platform. Crazy Glue is our intro music by Josh Woodward and Love Wins is our outro by me, Rose Beer. Thank you, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.